possible. And we thought, well, what better way to make Foundry as a firm seem more approachable than to do these like super self-deprecating videos, you know, <laughs> write these funny songs. Welcome to VC Evolve podcast, conversations about the future of VC. Our guest today is Seth Levine, a founding partner at the Foundry Group. The Foundry Group was founded in 2007, and today it manages more than $4 billion. And it has invested in hundreds of companies and dozens of venture funds. Seth is also an author. He and Elizabeth McBride published The New Builders to tell the stories of the next generation of underrepresented and minority founders. He also shares his thoughts on his blog, sethlevine.com, and you can follow him on X at Sether, Seth E-R. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. First, and before we get into the money talk, I've been following the Foundry Group for many years, and I remember the firm for its VC funny songs, like I'm a VC, the worst of time, and board meeting. Why did you stop doing that? I love that. You're yeah, right. The internet, everything's on the internet forever, right? So I sometimes I oh, forget yeah. we did those things. Yeah. I mean, in one of those, I'm like laying on the top of a car in a sequin dress too. So I'm sure my, uh, my kids will find that amusing. We thought that it would be fun for lack of a better, you know, better answer. There was a time in venture when I first started in 2001, because uh, I worked for a, a Palo Alto based firm uh, before founding Foundry. And uh, there was a time in venture when it was per- it was perceived as an advantage to not sort of let entrepreneurs know what was going on and sort of who was behind VCs. Everything from what's in a term sheet to you know how are board meetings run to to everything. I mean, it's, it's sort of anathema to think about it now, right? Because every VC is out there on Twitter and are uh, on X and on their blogs and on podcasts and things like things like that, talking about the, the you know the ins and outs of VC. But there was a time when uh, it was considered a strategic advantage for VCs to not be very open and instead uh, be quite opaque. And you know, we when we started Foundry, you were really even before that. My one of my Foundry co-founders, Brad Feld, was very early into blogging. I was very early into it, trying to kind of open up the veil on venture. And my partner Brad, along with one of my other partners, Jason, wrote a book called VC Deals, Venture Deals, that explained term sheets and really um, tried to demystify venture. And so that had always kind of been our ethos making venture more approachable. And we thought, well, what better way to make Foundry as a firm seem more approachable than to do these like super self-deprecating videos, you know, <laughs> write these funny songs. I, I, several of my my partners are legitimate musicians, right? They occasionally let me play in with them, but they're the real musicians. And to record these kind of funny bi- videos to just show that we weren't taking ourselves too seriously. We thought it would be a really good way for people to get to know us a little bit and ultimately lead to more people reaching out and looking for funding. And, and that's exactly what it did. It was really sort of a, an early and, and frankly, probably pretty clumsy attempt at, at marketing and marketing the firm back when people really didn't know anything about Foundry. And, and frankly, back when we started Foundry, there were a handful of sort of well-known named venture firms, but there weren't a lot of smaller firms like Foundry or Union Square or First Round or True or any of the others that you think about now. Those firms existed in many cases, but just hadn't yet made a name for themselves. So that was- Yeah, honestly, I I loved it because I was early in my career in venture and I was taking myself very seriously. And when I saw this, I was like, I need to chill. So yeah, it, it helped. It helped a lot. I was living in Dubai at the time. I was not in the US. So um, hmm. I think it was uh, international. I, it so it makes me very happy to hear that. 
I mean, because that's exactly what we were trying to do. And I think it's, look, it's very easy in life, right, to take yourself too seriously. And I, I had a moment in 2000, kind of right at the height of the bubble, where something, I was feeling very, very happy with myself and something happened to kind of put me in my place. And and it was a really kind of defining moment for me and in, in, in my entire life about about not getting too full of myself and, and not taking myself too seriously. I continue to try to remind myself that and live my life that way, right? And I think that it's easy to get wrapped up, especially when you're in the echo chamber of the startup ecosystem and everything you do seems so important and changing the world and all that kind of stuff. You know, what we do is is part of the sort of broader ecosystem. And it's in part of what what brought me to write the, you know, the book that I wrote, because one of the one of the themes of the book is that Silicon Valley style entrepreneurship has really taken over the definition of entrepreneurship. And we've forgotten that 99% of businesses in the US don't take money from venture capital. And, and actually, there's this incredibly robust ecosystem of, of people building companies that have nothing to do with the type of entrepreneurship that gets funded by by venture. And, and we've sort of forgotten that. Yeah, I, I will definitely come back to the book. But before that, let me ask you this. The, the Foundry Group manages billions of dollars invest in startups as well as funds. And as far as I know, please correct me if I'm mistaken, employs less than 20 people. How can you manage such a, such a big AUM at scale with such a small team? For starters, we work a lot. But no, you're absolutely right. And you know what we've tried to do is stay very focused on what our core jobs are. And I think it's really easy in the venture business to get distracted from what our jobs are really about. And so uh, at Foundry, we've sort of used that focus kind of as our superpower. Like we recognize that our job is to attract great business opportunities to invest in, to pick the best of those opportunities to invest in, understanding that of the thousands and thousands of, of deals that we see in any given year, there are many hundreds that are, are likely pretty good deals um, and will likely get funded. But you know, our job is to pick the right number, which is around sort of eight or 10 a year for us, that we're really passionate about, that we are passionate about the founders, that we're passionate about what they're doing, et cetera. And then we obviously provide advice and help along the way. We hire and fire CEOs is sort of core to our job as board members and venture investors, and we help on exit. And I think it's easy to get distracted on all sorts of other things that aren't necessarily additive to our business. And we've tried to be really careful about that. And, that's, and by the way, that's not to say that some of these larger platforms that have talent partners and have PR you know, partners and whatever else that, that folks are doing, you know, I'm sure that they are also in their ways adding value to uh, their portfolio companies, but we've tried to really stay focused on what it is that we need to do. And and that's what's allowed us to scale and scale in a way that, that we didn't need to grow a huge firm to do that. And, and the other secret sauce, of course, for us is that we, uh, in 2016, we kind of pivoted our model. And, and so in, we started as a direct investor, uh, sort of traditional seed and series A fund uh, back in 2007. Um, and in 2016, we decided to institutionalize what we'd, been, what we'd been doing individually on the side, which was investing in some other venture funds. And so we started doing that as Foundry. Uh, we called it Foundry Group Next. And and that, if you think about it, we now have about 50 funds in, in that portfolio. And that really extends our reach and it extends our knowledge base because we have, there are hundreds of partners now 
in those venture firms that we can call upon for expertise in certain areas. And so it really extends our network. They obviously aren't foundry partners, but if you think about it in some respects, you know, we have a firm of hundreds and hundreds of people because we have access to resources across what we call our partner funds, the funds that we've invested in. And how accessible is all this network? It, it seems really big. How do you make it easy for founders to tap into this network? It's gonna, I'm going to give you an answer that's going to sound ridiculous in its simplicity, but the, the special sauce for us has been a Google group. Okay. And we, <laughs> yeah. we have, it, yeah, we've experimented with, we had a couple fancier versions of this and we keep reverting back to the Google group. We have an incredibly robust and active set of Google groups where our portfolio companies interact with each other and with us. We've always believed in the idea of a mesh network instead of a hub and spoke network. So we don't want people to feel like they have to come through us to get advice, help, et cetera, from their peers. And so we strongly encourage people to reach out directly to each other. And we try to, we try to facilitate, but get out of the way. And, and that's worked in like magic at Foundry. And, and I, I don't know what it really is. I mean, I, I just, I think that, you know, I've heard from a, a number of founders that the, for whatever reason, the Foundry CEO list is an order of magnitude more robust than other CEO, either Slack channels or, or email lists that they're on. And I, I don't know quite why that is, but we've been able to sort of harness a little bit of magic and, and that's really worked well for us. Now we do get people together on a regular basis. So we have a topical webinars because, you know, we've noticed a number of companies dealing with the same challenge. So we'll often, we'll bring in an expert or we'll provide our own knowledge and uh, put that up on a platform and invite people to participate live, but then, you know, look at it later in, in the recording. Um, and then we do get together every year with our, all of our CEOs and have a several day summit. Really that's more to develop and, and enhance the relationships and reinforce that mesh network I was describing. Uh, really more more for that than anything else but but you know those are the things that we do that allow us to kind of scale the business well i love that and at such a big firm i always wonder how does it really work in the inside when it comes to asset allocation do you have different funds for different startup stages and do you have a separate fund of fund or does it all come from one fund but you have specific allocations how do you manage capital inside when you do all these kinds of investments yeah it's We've had, a, I mean, the answer is that we're still figuring it out, right? I mean, we, we've had a few incarnations. We think we're on the model that we like the most now, but we had a version initially where we had separate capital for growth versus our uh, early stage investing. We also had separate capital allocated in a separate fund for fund investing. Um, in the last two funds, we brought all of that together. So now we just simply have a fund um, and we just, we just announced that we had, uh, not just, but we announced that we had raised a fund about a year, a year and a half ago. And that's just a single fund. It has an allocation to funds because obviously we have to tell our investors where that money is going to go, but it doesn't actually have further allocation. So we don't allocate to sex sector. We don't allocate early stage versus mid stage versus late stage. And so that allowed us to sort of manage, I think a little bit better, all of the activities inside of Foundry because we weren't worried about which fund does this thing go into. Every opportunity simply goes into the fund and we have to decide yes or no, does this make sense for us? And we're very, very methodical. And I think a lot of VCs are about how we manage our portfolio, how we think about follow-on capital. We do very regular check-ins on the portfolio. We define what success metrics look like. Uh, we obviously have reserve models as everyone does. We, re we revisit those reserve models on a regular basis. 
And, you know, I think we have an ability with each other in part because we've been together for a while. I mean, if you think about at least the three of us, one of my partners retired, but the three of us that were our founding partners that are still here, you know, Brad, Ryan, and I, I mean, we've been working together for uh, 22 years. We have this longevity and this history together, but even there are, I'm using air quotes, you can't see me, but our newer partners have all been here for quite a long time, right? And are our people that we've known for a while, Jacqueline and Chris Moody and Lyndall. And so we're able to have, I think, you know, difficult conversations with each other. And I, I think that, that part of the secret is that we don't agree all the time and we're comfortable exploring those areas of disagreement. And I think we also do a really good job of not dwelling on those areas of disagreement, once we make a decision as a firm, then that's the firm decision and we're all behind that, even if one of us was against it. We also treat every deal as a firm deal, so there's no individual attribution at Foundry. And, and I think that is also very helpful because we're, we're not sort of pointing fingers when something doesn't work out because every decision was a group decision. And if it didn't work out, then, you know, then we all are responsible for the fact that it didn't work out. The cost to start a company went down dramatically over the past 10 years. There are tools for almost everything. The founders can focus on the core problem that they're trying to solve. What about VC? Are there enough tools for VCs to, to make starting a fund easier, starting and managing a fund easier and cheaper, whether, whether it's internal tools for management, legal stuff, admin, offering value maybe? I mean, the short answer is no, not at all. Um, the longer answer is it's way better than it used to be. The, the whole process has changed. I mean, when we first started Foundry, it was incredibly expensive. We actually had, and then, you know, this is back when funds had a an offering memorandum, which was a, a very detailed document, not a you know kind of PowerPoint or or Google slide presentation, and you know which, which was edited by lawyers and all, all of the things. So, you know, some of that's gone away. There are really good options for kind of outsourcing back office in venture now, and that's changed significantly in the 20s, 20 plus years I've been in venture. So, so there are some sort of logistical things on the back end that make it easier. By the way, Carta, where you used to work, also makes, or, or tools like that, also mm -hmm. make it a lot easier for uh, VCs because we have now standardized cap tables and we have a way to to track the current cap table that we didn't used to have, right? We used to just save Excel files in folders and such. Um, so all of that exists. And there are some tools that are very helpful for VCs, right? Many, many venture firms use Affinity or Clay or, you know, all sorts of things to kind of manage their uh, kind of their CRM style activities. But there's not a lot that's been specifically designed for venture. And maybe that's just because the venture market's not big enough, right? I mean, I suppose if I saw a founder come in and say, hey, my target market are the the thousand venture firms in the US, I, you know, I might I might scratch my head and say that doesn't feel like a large enough market. That's the longer answer to the like it hasn't it's gotten a, a little bit better, but it's not like gotten an order of magnitude better. Certainly not in the same way that that it has for companies. Now I think that it's much more transparent. People understand what it takes to raise a fund now and how to do that. But there's still a lot of opacity in the in the LP marketplace and, and sort of what what LPs are interested in, what types of funds. And, and you know, I, I watch, we, we invest in a lot of emerging managers in our funds practice, and I've watched them struggle to try to figure out what LPs to, to get in front of and how to get in front of them. So I, you know, I think there's there's plenty of work still left to do there. As a VC, I'm expected to see trends before they become obvious, right? Uh, from cloud services to SaaS, wearables, VR, blockchain, now AI. 
Over the past two decades in venture, did you develop a way to predict new trends early on? Such an interesting question, right? Because, and I think it's an interesting, I think that VCs oftentimes think that their job is to predict trends sort of before they've happened, but that's not quite true, right? I mean, we, you don't want to invest in science experiments for the most part, right? You, it needs to be close enough to commercialization, which means that, that means that there needs to be some understanding of the commercial potential for any given technology. And so in many respects, what we're talking about is like being early in a market, but not so early that you're too early, right? I mean, it's early, being too early is the same as being too late, right? I mean, and the world is littered with companies that, you know, we're not, we're incredibly prescient in terms of an overall trend. Think about, I don't know, social media and, and, you know, the Facebook was like the fourth or fifth platform that looked like Facebook. It just was there finally at the right time with the right set of tools. I think you develop that sense by going deep into markets that you're interested in, right? I think about, you know, sort of what led us to our investment in Fitbit as an example, which was one of the, one of the bigger wins for Foundry, probably, probably the biggest win for Foundry um, in our history. But that was really going deep on personal technology, uh, wearable technologies, and, and, and having a belief about how people might instrument their daily lives in a different way. So that wasn't a technology bet. Pedometers existed, right? We knew you could count steps and things like that. But that was sort of predicting a trend that became obviously became a huge trend in wearables as just one example, right? And, and a lot of our other successful investments have kind of looked like that, like markets that were starting to evolve, like there was something to look at where we had a deep and personal interest in it, not necessarily as a consumer, but as um, someone who understood those markets. And we were able to kind of figure out what the trends were in, in those markets that enable us to invest in usually a couple of companies over the course of 5, 10, even 20 years in some cases, and to do so in a way that, you know, let us pick the the sort of the winning companies, right? Obviously, didn't always get it right at, at all, right? Venture investors are, are famous for, you know, around two-thirds of our investments fail and fail, certainly mm -hmm. fail the return, a venture return. But you just have to be enough, you have to be right enough of the time. And fortunately, we've been able to do that. I don't know if that answers. I want to go back. Right. It, it does. Know, there's no it like does. crystal ball, it's, it's like, right? I get that that answer from many of the VCs. There's no crystal ball. My crystal ball is not as good as yours. So, <laughs> but I think part of it is there are lots of very like if you think you're the smartest person in the room, like you you like that's a problem. I think that one of the things that we've done effectively at Foundry is we've opened ourselves to being consumers of data and information in every way possible. And in a couple of cases, we, we even founded conferences that we ran to dive deep into certain technology areas that we were interested in. And we did that because we wanted to be immersed in those areas so that we could be on the front lines of some of those trends and, and learn from others that were thinking about it day in and day out, right? I mean, I have a lot of my job that's helping portfolio companies. I have a decent amount of my job that, you know, involves other sort of management things around foundry or fundraising and you know, all of that. Like I'm not spending a hundred percent of my time or even 50% of my time trying to predict trends. And so what I really need to do in the time that I do spend trying to understand where the world is evolving towards is mm -hmm. learn from others that are spending more time than I'm able to doing that. I want to go back to your book, The New Builders. You describe a different type of founders can you tell us more about this new breed of founders uh, and why should we as VCs pay more attention to it? Well, I think we as humans should pay more attention to mm -hmm. it, right? And when Elizabeth and I um, started the work on that book, 
we didn't really understand the trends that 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 we ended up writing about. Um, we we knew there were lots of interesting founders who didn't necessarily look like the people that were getting covered in the tech press, and and we thought we'd write a pretty lighthearted book telling their stories. And it turned out that a couple things were true that were really surprising to us. The first of which is at the time entrepreneurship in the U.S. was flagging. There were fewer and fewer people starting businesses. And we realized that part of the reason that that was happening is that the makeup of entrepreneurs, the backgrounds of entrepreneurs had changed significantly in ways that, frankly, Silicon Valley had not caught up with and, and that most people didn't realize, specifically that women, people of color, immigrants, as they always have, uh, were starting the majority of businesses and were starting far more businesses than people realized. Women start businesses at a rate of four times that of men. And black women are the single fastest group, growing group of uh, new business owners. And we just simply weren't doing a good job of connecting those new builders, those new entrepreneurs to capital. And interestingly enough, when we sort of uncovered some of these trends, we, we went back to, you know, I went and told some of my, the folks I know in venture, Elizabeth went back and, and talked to uh, some of the folks that she works with in, in journalism. She's a, uh, an author, a writer. And, uh, and the most common reaction we had from everyone was, well, that, that's not right. That, the, the, the data there that you're showing me are wrong. And that's when we realized that we were perhaps onto something. And so we, we ended up going very deep, met a ton of really interesting people that were building businesses, that were supporting new builders, and thinking about sort of different ways of organizing our finance system that would enable us to, to better fund these new businesses. And, and we wrote, up, wrote a book about it, which, which I think was, I'm really proud of. Like, I think it's a really, it's an interesting book. It's full of facts and figures, but it's also, we tell a lot of stories. It's very accessible. And we just we talk about these these emerging trends. And, and I spoke earlier about one of the one of the trends that I was trying to warn my friends in venture about is that I think there's this idea that sort of VC style entrepreneurship is the only entrepreneurship that matters. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of money that goes into venture backed businesses, of course. Those businesses support lots of other businesses, right? I mean, there's plenty of venture venture backed companies that work with small businesses around the country and help them be more efficient and run their own run their own businesses better. But the truth is, 99% of businesses aren't taking money from venture. And by the way, only about 12% of businesses take money from banks. So the vast majority of companies are self funded, and this this yeah. kind of goes to this this gap in the financing system. But I, this idea that entrepreneurship only refers to tech entrepreneurship, I think it's pernicious, right? I mean, Elizabeth and I really felt like that's a threat to entrepreneurship in the US. And, and to some extent, a new builders was a, a bit of a call to arms to to change some things around, least we lose our entrepreneurial edge as a country. And it's really been something that's defined the US over over generations. I mean, really since the founding of the United States was this sort of unique entrepreneurial spirit. And you know that was that was really why we wrote the book was to challenge people to uh, to get that back. SMBs are usually ninety or ninety five percent of the backbone of any economy, and neglecting SMBs would be neglecting uh, the main source of jobs in that country, right? A absolutely, I wanna... right. I mean, it's yeah. you know the truth is uh, fifty percent of employment in the U.S. and forty percent of GDP are are from small businesses, and the vast majority of companies in the U.S. are uh, have fewer than ten employees, 
And so we, we can't, but they don't have a lobbying group. Like they're not, you know, there's not organization in the way that, that large companies are able to influence policy. And, and, you know, that's one of the reasons why policy has not kept up. And we, there's lots and lots of policies on the book that benefit big businesses and don't benefit small businesses. And, and that was something we tried to highlight. And, and I, I think one of the things I'm proud about, of the, about the book is we know that a bunch of staffers on Capitol Hill read it. And we heard directly from a couple of them that it, you know, it changed particularly around the, uh, the pandemics. We published the book one year into the pandemic, um, and we know that it influenced uh, aid packages and and sort of what people, how people on the Hill were crafting uh, some of the, the policies that they put in place to help help bolster small business, especially through the pandemic. I'm always uh, skeptical when it comes to government solving such issues, but uh, do you think a new asset class or new type of investors would help in closing that gap? I mean, not VCs per se, but maybe a new asset class. Yeah, I mean the venture model is not particularly well tuned to funding these small these the types of businesses we're talking about. There are there are some attempts with revenue-based investing. Those are attempts to broaden the types of businesses that can receive venture-ish like money, but I mean ultimately I think we need to rethink a little bit how we how we can deploy capital into small business. It probably looks like a loan product. But it's smaller dollar amounts, right? I mean, the, the SBA average SBA loan is like six hundred. A small business loan is like six or seven hundred thousand dollars. Like, well, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about companies that need businesses that need twenty five to a hundred thousand dollars to buy a new food truck, to open that home fitness, to open a salon of some kind, right? I mean, you know, the truth is, sixty percent of businesses that are started in the U.S. are health and wellness beauty or, or restaurant. So, you know, those are the types of companies and you can think about the kind of things that, that businesses like that in those categories might need to spend money on it. So that's, I, I think there's a huge opportunity there. I'm actually on the side working uh, on a business to go after that. And uh, hopefully I'll, we'll have, maybe the next time you have me back uh, in six months, we'll have more to talk about where we're in the process of raising some money for that. But um, I can't wait. That's a, uh, that's another side job. So <laughs> I have a I have a partner who's working on it uh, more full time than I am. But but I, I feel I feel so passionately about it that I, I'm trying to get that out in the world. I think there's I mean one I think it's a huge business opportunity, but two I think it's going to be really good for the U.S. and the U.S. economy. So Seth, when when you consider emerging managers, do you look for innovation and in venture? Do you think that the VC model is already efficient and you don't need to innovate and change, or do you look for new ideas? And venture. Uh, yeah, I definitely don't think the venture model is is uh, is particularly efficient. So I think there's plenty of room for change. So absolutely, there are some aspects of venture that are are somewhat tried and true, but we often look for new ways of approaching that the, the traditional venture market. I think about something like the Hustle Fund that makes these sort of small grants to businesses, lots and lots of them, as a way of getting to know people. Think about our investment in tech stars, but back in the day and sort of how the accelerator model might work. So we're absolutely open to, but also actively working with funds to think about different ways to kind of pursue the model that they have. And, you know, every fund has its own flavor and it. it it's, it's What's interesting to me is I, I think it's a little bit, it's kind of like I, I, my oldest kids are, are had just, just applied to college. So that the two of them, uh, I've got two sophomores in college. And uh, so we just went through this process and like, on the surface, all colleges, or at least all liberal arts colleges that my kids were looking at, kind of sounded the same. But then when you dug into it, there were lots and lots of differences. And I feel like that's true in the VC market as well, that there are many 
sort of minutiae differences between firms that are extremely important. And we really try to uncover that as we work with, uh, with our emerging managers, with the funds that we've, that we've uh, invested in. You've been in, in venture for 20 years. You've seen ups and downs in the, in the market. I wonder how do you see the future of VC, the VC asset class and the VC model in the next maybe 10 years, 10, 15 years? I mean, I'd love, I think it's getting finally more diverse and I'm really excited about that. And I feel like, I mean, it's one of the reasons I've, I've been saying publicly, this is my last last foundry fund. And part of the reason that I feel like it's time to step aside is that I, I'd like to, you know, I'd like there to be more room for more, more people, frankly, who don't look like me, right? White and male, and in my case, middle-aged as well, to get into venture. And I, I think that that I, to me, that is probably the most important trend in venture. We, it's been talked about for a long time, but I think it's finally, finally starting to happen. I, I look across our own partner fund portfolio. It's incredibly diverse. And the, the, the style that they bring, the uh, new ideas that they bring, the, the networks that they bring, all of that is, I, I think, pushing venture forward in ways that, that I think is really, really positive. And so that's what gets me most excited about venture as an asset class for the next 20 years. I love it. And for my last and final question, you've been to the Middle East multiple times. You've also mentored GPs in there. Today, we're seeing a huge VC boom in Saudi Arabia. It's unlike anything we've seen in the region in previous cycles. Yeah. Like 70 VC firms started in less than three years. Valuations are high. Seed rounds are in tens of millions of dollars. And we all know history repeats itself. Markets has ups and downs. What Saudi or Middle East VCs in general should be excited about and should be concerned about? What can we do to avoid mistakes that maybe you've seen in other emerging markets? One, I would say I'm, I'm really excited about what's happening across the Middle East in terms of access to venture. And I think it's really positive. I think it creates great connections back to, to the US, to Europe. And, and obviously, there's a very robust ecosystem in Israel as well for tech venture. Um, so I think that that's, I think that's all quite positive. I don't know why it is that in venture, we can't seem to avoid sort of bubbles of some kind, or at least the pendulum swinging yeah. too far. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, we're watching it in AI right now in the U S or really globally, I guess, but, and that tends to be what happens, right? Someone realizes that, you know, investing in Saudi startups is a good idea. And then all of a sudden, a whole bunch of people recognize that. Right. And, and so, mm-hmm. um, Saudi market, I happen to know pretty well because I, I was there quite recently, uh, a little over a year ago, and I'm, I'm an advisor to one of the early funds that, that realized that there was going to be a, a good market here. They were probably the, almost the first mover in Saudi. And then, you know, all these other funds have, have then come in behind them. And, you know, look, ultimately, the mar- I believe that the capital markets are efficient and they sort themselves out. And so while I believe that there are some of the things that we're seeing that you just described in terms of valuations and, and in terms of how the markets are evolving are not sustainable, I also believe that as the market kind of works through that, what will be left is a really robust market, right? I mean, there are there are a lot of, there's a lot of support for entrepreneurship in and around the region. Um, right now. And I think that that's positive. And by the way, that's going to extend to some other markets, right? I mean, we certainly, we see that in, in Jordan, where you're from. We see that in, in Egypt. We see that in other markets in Africa, right? I mean, if you look back 10 years ago, there were essentially no seed and, and series A funds sort of across the African continent. And now there's, there are dozens working in, not in every market, of course, I mean, Africa is both a huge place, but it's also very disparate markets. That landscape has, has changed dramatically. 
And so I think that that's what we're seeing, you know, sort of across the Middle East. And for a lot of different reasons, um, Saudi is a very large market, very consumer driven. And obviously there's a quite a bit of reform taking place there uh, right now, especially with this Vision 2030 plan. And I think what we're seeing is a natural byproduct of uh, people having more opportunities. And the truth is, the more opportunity you give people, the more likely they are to start businesses. And that's what's helping create this sort of um, robust ecosystem. And even in Dubai, where you lived for a while, there, I mean, as much as you think about Dubai as sort of this international finance center, there wasn't much in the way of, of early stage or even growth stage venture there. And now all of a sudden there is, right? So I, I think that yeah. um, I think that those are just trends that that are positive for the market. And then look, I think it's okay if, if some markets occasionally get a little overheated um, and then normalize. That's just, that seems to be how the, how the cycle works. We inchworm into things. Well, with that, Seth, you've been very generous with your time. This was a very rich, deep and educational episode. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me.